Sup, monks? How are you? You good on this beautiful, blustery morning in October? We are, again, entering the conversation tube and bursting off. God, that sounds so fucked up. What am I even talking about? Um, we're back with another podcast with Mr. Brett Anderson. Brett is an evolutionary psychology PhD student at the University of New Mexico. He is also the author of The Intimations of a New Worldview Substack, which is tremendous and is in the description if you want to check it out. Uh, Brett's research focuses on the evolutionary and cognitive basis of autism and psychosis, and his substack is mainly about the meaning crisis, Western culture, and biological cognitive evolutionary solutions to the meaning crisis and a, a new worldview that he sees emerging in the sciences. And that's what we're talking about in this podcast. We're talking about rectifying the long-standing feud between science and religion. We're talking about the effect that Jordan Peterson had on us and on our personal development. And we are imagining a future scenario whereby the worldview that is currently keeping us down has been ameliorated. So as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, follow along on Substack, follow along on Spotify. Uh, I'm building up the YouTube channel a bit now. There's going to be a lot more videos on deep self-improvement topics, things that are practical philosophy, so philosophical ideas, but within the framework of improving your character and helping you to live a better life. If it's not doing that, I really don't care. Um, there's so much philosophy of people just arguing about words on the internet, and I really drives me into a vicious rage i want to start throwing things um so we're not going to do that we're not going to contribute to the shit heap no matter how popular it is online and try and actually do something that's beneficial for people so without further ado here's the podcast Boom. Welcome to the podcast, Brett. Thank you so much for joining me. I wanted to start off with like, how would you introduce what, what you're doing to people? How would you introduce uh, your work? Uh, how do you think about it? Yeah, so, so thanks for having me, uh, Mahan. And uh, how, would I, how would I introduce it? Yeah, so the name of my Substack is Intimations of a New Worldview. Uh, when, I, when I started out on this sort of intellectual journey that I'm on now, I, I definitely didn't have anything in mind like what I'm doing now, really. In fact, you know, what I was really doing was trying to understand myself more than anything. Uh, and so I, I kind of had some issues in my early 20s and, and I sort of made a comeback and I, I was trying to understand what, you know, what happened to me. And in doing that, it led me to questions about uh, questions about, you know, the, the meaning of life in general and, you know, what, uh, and ontology, right? What is what is real and all this and, and certainly didn't expect to go in that direction. Uh, but that is what happened. Um, what I'm up to, you know, on Substack is really just writing about, so ideas that have been sort of, um, uh, simmering for a pretty long time now, and I'm, I'm just sort of putting them on paper now. And, uh, so I'm doing a few things on Substack. So I'm doing a, a series on, on Nietzsche. So bringing Nietzsche's philosophical project to its logical conclusion. I think that Nietzsche got a lot of things right in his mature views. Um, it's sometimes hard to understand Nietzsche, but but reading the, the secondary literature, so the philosophical commentary on Nietzsche, in combination with, with the scientific literature that I read, I think that 
Uh, a lot of modern scientific findings have vindicated Nietzsche on a lot of points. And uh, I'm doing a series on, on Jordan Peterson's first book, Maps of Meaning, which is an, an, an incredibly mm -hmm. difficult book. Uh, and uh, I think that Jordan got at something very fundamental in that book. And I think that his, his thesis is actually probably closer to Nietzsche's than Jordan, I think, realized in some ways. But, uh, mm -hmm. but, but Jordan um, was, was trying to reconceptualize how we think about morality uh, in, in, a, in a sense. And I think he, uh, I think he succeeded. And um, then I, the, the most popular essay I have is called Intimations of a New Worldview. So the same name as my Substack, And it is uh, putting forward a sort of whole picture of how to think about. So in, in, to my mind, what I'm doing there is thinking about value judgments without the two worlds mythology. Uh, I don't. I don't really conceptualize it that way in the in the essay, but that's really what I'm doing. So, uh, John Verveke in his Meaning Crisis series talks about how during the axial age we we conceptualize the world as uh, as this kind of two worlds mythology. So there's the sensory world, and then there's like a true world, right? A transcendent world that exists outside of that, and our values are emanated from from this transcendent world. Well, when Nietzsche declared the death of God, you know, what he was really saying there is that we can no longer believe, right, scientifically educated people, we no longer believe in that transcendent world. And that means that our, and since our values were, were emanating from that transcendent world, we have lost the ability to, to ground our value judgments in that. We have to find a new way to ground our value judgments. Um, and so I think that there is a way to do that. Uh, that is, that is that doesn't require the two worlds mythology. So anyways, that's kind of a broad overview of what I'm up to. That's exactly what I, I mean. That gives a, yeah, kind of the broad landscape of everything that's going on. Cause what, I mean, I, I've read um, a lot of your Substack and I've really been blown away by it. Like I just, there's so many things that are particularly what you're touching on there, the kind of death of God, loss of uh, kind of absolute standard of value from which to make relative value judgments. And then the kind of complexity that emerged with like the 1800s kind of trying to find a rational grounding for value judgments that didn't really work. Um, and then the kind of weird space that we find ourselves in now. I, I noticed in the, the about section of uh, Intimations of New Worldview, you kind of say that, that these kind of new, you know, evolutionary psychology, cultural evolution, complexity science kind of hold the answers to the meaning crisis and to the morality and religion thing. So do you think that these are kind of providing a, a grounding from which because this will kind of get into the is-ought distinction, which is something I wanted to talk to you about, because that's sure. such a big problem in ethics, which is what I'm doing yes. my work in, my, I'm publishing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that the natural sciences, is there something emerging there that could be a foundation for this kind of value-based, evaluative statements? That's, that's what I'm arguing for, yeah. And so mm. uh, I can give sort of a, a brief summary of what I, what I think the bridge between ought and is looks like from that perspective. Yes. And, okay. um, so because this is what I, this is what I think, you know, Nietzsche was trying to do, right. Nietzsche was trying to bridge mm -hmm. the gap between ought and is, and he was doing that through his will to power thesis. Right. So uh, in, in my series on Nietzsche, that's how it's going to culminate. I'm going to argue that, that his will to power thesis actually lines up with the, with the argument that I'm making elsewhere. But yeah. so there is a, a, a literature that began in statistical physics uh, by a guy named Perbach who was trying to understand the emergence of complexity in nature. 
uh, he was trying to understand. So the, the problem is, is relatively simple. The laws of physics are deterministic, right? They're, they're simple and deterministic. You can write them all down on a single sheet of paper. And yet we look around and we don't see this kind of deterministic world. We don't see a simple determinant. We see complexity. So how do we get complexity out of those simple laws? And what he reasoned in the first place, what he reasoned was that complexity emerges at the border between order and chaos. And so uh, an ordered system, right? Order is like a crystal. And so when, you, when you're looking at a crystal, each part of the system, so if you, if you know what one part of the system looks like, you know what the whole thing looks like, and that's not complexity, right? On the opposite end of the spectrum is uh, the chaos end is, is a gas, right? So a gas is the same way. It doesn't have the structure of a crystal, but if you look at what one part looks like, you know what the whole thing looks like. And again, that's not complexity. Uh, complexity emerges at the narrow window between order and chaos. And so the question for, for Pierre Bach was, how do systems in nature get there without any tuning from an outside agent? Because we we can tune a system, right? We can set the temperature and other variables right, you know, right where they need to be to put the, put it at the border between order. But how do systems in nature get there without any tuning? And so this is the origins of the term self-organized criticality. So criticality represents the border between order and chaos, and systems in nature have to self-organize from the bottom up through the interactions of the parts of the system and their environment to this narrow window, right? They do it without any tuning from an outside agent. Um, and so that was his, that was his explanation of the emergence of complexity. Now, as an explanation of the emergence of complexity, it's incomplete. There are other, there are other pieces to the puzzle, uh, that have to be included in that, but the, the, uh, concept of self-organized criticality became an important concept within biology because it was found that, uh, so there were theoretical arguments made that biological systems function optimally at criticality. So they function optimally at the border between order and chaos. And there are there is empirical findings showing that uh, that biological systems show signatures of being at or near criticality. So uh, this can be things like genetic regulatory systems show signatures of criticality, uh, flocks of birds, and probably most importantly for our purposes, the brain. Right? The brain shows signatures of being at or near criticality, and and so at this border between order and chaos, systems function optimally. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, from my perspective is that this was so jordan peterson and his first book maps of meaning argued I was gonna that, say yeah meaning yeah mm. yeah so uh, argued that the mythological hero figure right so this this sort of generalized hero figure that we can extract from the particular mythological narratives the hero stands at the border between order and chaos and that's the right place to be it's the optimal place to be and that there's a particular process that occurs when you're at that border, which he calls the metamythology, and that process involves a descent into chaos and a reemergence into a higher form of order. Now, what's so interesting about this to me is that, for one, Jordan made this argument completely independently of the self-organized criticality literature, so he didn't have any uh, knowledge of that. He didn't mm -hmm. mention it in the book, and I, I, he wouldn't have known about it because uh, it was really – so Pear Box book was published in 1996, and Jordan published Maps of Meaning in 1999 – but Parabox's book was pretty obscure, so I, I just don't think he could have known about it. But what's so interesting is that that process that Jordan describes is what occurs at the border between order and chaos in, in uh, complex systems. Uh, so uh, self-organized criticality, the, the model that we, that we use to talk about it is called the sand pile model. And the sand pile model is where you, you're pouring sand on a pile one piece at a time. And eventually, at that critical point, you get an avalanche, right? So the avalanche is like the descent into chaos. And then you, mm -hmm. you rebuild the sand pile, and it's wider. It has a wider base now. So you have an, an increase in complexity uh, that, that is facilitated by these descents into chaos and reemergences that occur at the border between order and chaos. Mm -hmm. So we see this very nice 
uh, this very nice concordance between what Jordan Peterson was talking about in Maps of Meaning and the self-organized criticality literature. Now, the thing about this, the, the criticality literature is that there's a value judgment built into it. Right? The value judgment built into it is that being at the border between order and chaos is good. Right? There's, nothing, there's nothing negative about it. Right? There's nothing good about being mm -hmm. tilted towards too much order or tilted towards – like that's, that's the right place to be. And it's uh, it's the right place to be regardless of the particulars of the situation, um, and so it's a, it's a general value judgment that is objective in some in some sense. It's an objective value judgment, um, and so if that's true, you know, then the question becomes: Well, what does that look like? What does that look like in the context of a particular life? Um, and this is you know as far as I as far as I can tell, I mean, this is why we have these uh, these narratives. Um, the narratives sort of bring it down to earth and show that this is um, this is what it looks like to stand at the border between order and chaos. It looks something like the the generalized hero myth, uh, mm. and then yeah. So yeah, I'm thinking of there as well. I mean, the the problem that John Verveke points out with relevance realization because I know that the it, the what you were writing about is that the hero myth is representing relevance realization or the process yes. of relevance realization. Yes. Um, and that John Verveke argues that relevance realization doesn't have an essence because it doesn't, it's a constantly changing environment. So the need to constantly renew these stories is because it's essentially a moving target. There isn't yes. really a finite kind of, oh, there isn't a, a finishing point to it. It's this kind of, again, it's a, it's a right place to be. Um, but I just kind of wondered something that was, was like, because this really flies in the face of the Newtonian model of the kind of billiard ball deterministic kind of causality, which is what this kind of 18th century, like David Hume emerged out of really. Um, I've been trying to read his work lately and it is very much steeped in the time in which it kind of came about. Um, so sure. is there a, does, is the Newtonian worldview the, the framing this essentially? So if the Newtonian worldview is wrong, the is-ought distinction is kind of, does that impact it? Is that what complexity is kind of stepping in for? Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I think so. Yeah. As long as we understand what complexity is and, and what, what the argument that I'm going to eventually make in my Nietzsche series is that what, what Nietzsche mm. meant by power is complexity. Mm. So when Nietzsche is mm. talking about the will to power, one, one translation of that, if you want to translate it into our, it's like a disposition towards complexity. Now, why do I say that? Well, you know, the way that we define complexity uh, so there, there are a variety of definitions of complexity floating around in the literature, uh, but the one that is that has been used um, across multiple literatures and that I think is a very good general definition of complexity is the one that was put forward by Giulio Tononi in a in a 1997 paper. I think is basically saying that a system is more complex to the extent that it is more differentiated and simultaneously integrated. Right. So the more mm -hmm. uh, parts of the the more parts that are brought into a single overarching uh, system, uh, the more complex it is. Now, what's what's really interesting about this is that that's basically what Nietzsche, how Nietzsche defined power, right? So the more powerful person is somebody who is able to bring a greater diversity of viewpoints and perspectives to bear on 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 life, while simultaneously uh, being unified in the service of a single overarching project, right? So you see the differentiation and, and the simultaneous integration. Um, so that is, so yes, the 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 complexity aspect of this. Um, absolutely sort of helps to bridge this gap between is and ought because complexity is sort of an objective thing. And yet complexity for us manifests as, uh, as, as a, a greater capacity to exert our, to, to what, 
uh, to live optimally in the world, right? It's something like that. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, that, it, that's really interesting about the will to power. I hadn't thought, I'd heard somebody kind of say, like uh, Robert Greene actually said that he thinks a bit more as like the will to grow or something like that. Because we think of power, obviously, there's all these connotations to it. Um, your description sounded more like wisdom to me, which I thought was interesting. But um, the the point about the is ought, I mean, what McIntyre says in After Virtue is that these older accounts of ethics had a teleological framework or teleological function of a human being, which they could then make evaluative judgments about. Um, and then in the 18th century with Newtonian physics, we threw out any kind of tele teleology of human function, essentially. We're in this kind of cold, dead, deterministic universe, uh, billiard balls. So is in a sense, is complexity, and is, I understand from the evolutionary point of view very much how that could be kind of offering a teleology um, but is is the complexity the foundation of that teleology, would you say? Yeah, so it, it depends on what we want to mean by teleology, right? Because the word telos mm. comes from the word, uh, if I remember correctly, it comes from the word end or f uh, final, uh, final end. Yeah. And the thing about this this process of complexification is that, as best we can tell, there is no end point to it, right? So it's not, mm. uh, there's no there's no final state of utopia that we're headed towards. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which it in which it is teleological to some to some, in some sense because the process of complexification itself is kind of, it is inevitable, right? So it's not like uh, we live in a sort of random universe and it's, it's nothing but chaos. Like um, this process has an, an inevitability to it. And so uh, the universe is complexifying and we can participate in that complexification. Uh, we can participate in that complexification, which is our, uh, our participation in, in uh, creation itself in some sense. Uh, so it's it sort of, it's sort of ambiguous about whether we want to call that teleological or not. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I understand. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's a weird, because I found this about all sorts of things, like in terms of um, like a lot of what I study is attention and I'm studying the attention economy or the ethics of the attention economy um, and monetizing attention and attention sure. seems to cross the is ought divide all the time. Like the, the facts of attention are values like attention functions by prioritizing according to an implicit value structure, an explicit one. So, I mean, I think when we get into our biology, you start to see a lot of these kind of oughts, like even the functioning of pleasure and pain in the brain makes certain suggestions about how best to do it and what sure. a bad way of doing it is um, that seem to ground it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we went into some tricky situations there, right? Because, um, there are clearly things that we are adapted to do that we wouldn't we wouldn't say that we ought to do, right? So, uh, you know, you know, uh, the sex drive, for example, right, can lead people to can lead people to do things that are pleasurable and that uh, we are driven to do because of our evolutionary past that most people would say you ought not to do, right? Mm. So, rape would mm. be the primary example, right? So, uh, so there's a there's some tricky there's some trickiness there in terms of grounding uh, ought judgments in biology as such. Um, so the, the order chaos thing, I think helps with this to some degree. So, you know, one of the, one of the other literatures that I, that I talk about on my writing quite a bit is, is the literature on cultural evolution, right? And, uh, cultural evolution is sort of a, another layer of values that we have. So we have like this, this biological yep. layer of values of, of things that we value because I don't know.
Interesting. Yeah, so I was talking about sort of cultural evolution okay. as this uh, this this layer on top of, of the values that are embodied in us. We have these embodied values that we have because of our evolutionary history, right? And so this is the we value mm -hmm. things like food and and sex and mm -hmm. like social status, right? And uh, and affiliation with other people and all this. Um, those are things that are that we naturally value because yeah. of our evolutionary history. But on top of that, right, we have this cultural layer mm -hmm. um, where we value things that are that that can change and, and that this can change quite quickly over time and. The example, the example that I like to use when talking about this, which is the example that Nietzsche, Nietzsche used as well, is looking at the Homeric Greeks. Because if you look at the, the Homeric Greeks, right, the pre-Socratic Greeks, um, in the Homeric epics, compassion and honesty were not valued. Right? Odysseus was a mass murderer and a liar, and there's no indication in those stories that he was doing anything morally wrong, right? And, and, you know, Achilles was kind of the same way, right? And these are the protagonists, right? There's no, you know, what they were after, what they valued was glory, right? It's something like glory, right? Mm. Uh, something like like living a glorious life, uh, not living a compassionate, honest life. Like that's, that's you know, that's slave morality, right? That's that's Western morality. Uh, so, the, you know, uh, the question is, how do we get from the ancient Greeks who valued, you know, something like glory on a, on a battle, you know, and they, they would, you know, when they conquered a polis, right, when one Greek polis would conquer another polis, right, they would torture the men, they would sell the women and children into slavery, and they didn't feel bad about this in the slightest, as best we can tell. Uh, so, and, and so the question is, well, how do we get from that morality to where we are now? And, you know, Nietzsche tells a story about this. Uh, there's also a very good book by a guy named Peter Turchin, uh, who tells a story uh, that's, that's a little different from Nietzsche's story, I think, but, but very interesting, which is that uh, during the Axial Age, you know, during the Axial Age, civilizations that adopted a more sort of compassionate egalitarian ethos were able to put more men on a battlefield, right? Because people actually don't like to fight for tyrants, right? People don't actually like to fight for somebody mm -hmm. who's tyrannizing them. And so that ethos prevailed during the Axial Age in multiple places, and that's the ethos that we currently uh, we currently have in our own culture to some degree. Uh, but it's important to understand that that's, that's not uh, our hyper-focus on egalitarianism and compassion in our own culture is, is not like human nature, right? If you look at, at human history, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's sort, of, sort of a unique thing. So mm -hmm. I, I have a point here, I think. So my point was that um, what you want to do, right? So none of these particular value sets are like objectively true, right? So our values yeah. are not objectively true in comparison to the Greek values. And, but what we want to do is to, so to be at the border between order and chaos, right? When you're uh, when we're talking about being at the border between order and chaos in this context, it's appropriately incorporating tradition, right? So you have to have the tradition because the tradition grounds you. You know, you are not smart enough to figure out everything on your own. Uh, the tradition figures some things out for you. You you subject yourself to the tradition, but then you also have to transcend the tradition at some point, right? So you want to master the tradition and then step outside of it, right? And that's something like what it means to be at the border between order and chaos in that context, right? Um, mm. So anyways, that's, that's, a, that's a way of sort of conceptualizing moral values as a process rather than a static set of values that are given to us by a transcendent God or something like that. Yeah, because that's, I mean, McIntyre is kind of a, a ethical relativist, really. That's kind of the conclusion he comes to is that it's conditional on the culture that we're in. Um, I guess, yeah, I'm kind of, because uh, if you're grounding it in biology, I mean, there's a, 
is that universal then to even in the negative sense that the difficulties with I suppose our human nature are our particular impulses um, and then cultural responses to that um, and that there's differing mm-hmm. responses but I guess I, I think the the issue of complexity and the border between order and chaos, what I'm trying to get at is, is that universal or is that culturally conditional? You know, because well, it sounds so, I mean, pretty think, universal. Yes. So the, the being at the border between mm-hmm. order and chaos is universal. But what's important to understand about mm-hmm. it is that that's a process and not a state. Uh, like, like being yes. at that border means that you mm-hmm. are participating in a process, not that you are adopting a static set of, of particular values. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm not a relativist. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not a relativist about, I think that there, I think that this process is objectively valuable, but it doesn't correspond to any particular values, right? It doesn't correspond to any particular set of values. It's the process by which we update that set of values. That's what's objectively valuable to, to my way of, uh, to my way of seeing it. Yeah. It's not a belief system. It's, uh, I think it was, that was Peterson says, it's not a belief system. It's, you know, the, where beliefs come from in a sense where they're revitalized and rebuilt yes so you're not caught in one static kind of knowledge structure yes yes it's not it's not your beliefs it's the process by which you update your beliefs uh and it's and it's Mm. a mode of being in the world right it's a mode of being it's not a it's not something that you believe uh it's it's a it's a way of being in the world right and it looks different depending on you know Mm. the the optimal way of being in the world is not going to be the same for a 15th century monk as it is for me right it's going to look quite different depending yeah. on the context, but the process itself, mm-hmm. I, I, I argue, and, and I think Peterson would argue as well, the process itself is the same. Yeah. And I mean, that's much more in concert really with ancient ethics, to be honest, which was about, it wasn't so much about questions of right and wrong, but more about how we should live our life. Um, yes. And different schools had different kind of ways of addressing that question, but it seemed that in the 1800s, morality and ethics kind of became this slightly weird propositional thing that it really wasn't what you wouldn't find it in Plato or Aristotle or that maybe a little bit in Aristotle, but um, it's kind of more of a new age thing. So I guess this, this framework offers people a maybe a way back into it. I mean, this might bring us to the meaning crisis and the kind of the need for this conversation in the first place, really, um, what people are struggling with. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think part of the meaning crisis is this disconnect. So we're, you know, the scientific enterprise has disconnected us from our traditions to a large degree. And that's, it's a big source of meaning in people's lives is, is the traditions that they participate in because you're participating in something that's bigger than you, right? It goes back generations, right? And, and it goes back to your, your venerated ancestors and all of this. We've lost touch with that. We've lost touch with the community that comes along with the religious sense, uh, because of course religion is not just about beliefs; it's about the music and the rituals mm-hmm. and all of this. And but because we've lost the beliefs, we lost all of that too. Um, and so, the question—I mean, we're, there's no going back, right? As far as I'm concerned, right? The, at least, mm-hmm. at least not for at least not for me, and I think for most sort of Western intellectual people, there's no going back to believing the way that we used to believe. Um, and so the question is, can, you know, is there a way of being in the world that would reestablish meaning in the wake of that, in the wake of that loss? Uh, and I think that there is. And yeah, so talking about the, the sort of 18th century stuff and everybody, everybody was trying to construct these rational systems, 
within which to ground morality, right? So we have Kant and Bentham and uh, people like that. And, you know, what Nietzsche and, and uh, Sam Harris, you know, Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape, I think is in this same tradition, right? It's the same kind of art. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and, mm. and what Nietzsche said about these people is the same thing that Jonathan Haidt would say about them. Uh, and it's actually very interesting to read Nietzsche's uh, story about this in relation to Jonathan Haidt's. So Jonathan Haidt's most famous paper is his 2000 paper, uh, The Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tale. And what Haidt said in that paper is that, you know, the way that psychologists tend to think about morality is in terms of moral reasoning, right? We reason our way into mm. moral propositions and all this. And and this is also uh, the, the type of, this is also how people thought about morality in Nietzsche's day. And both Haidt and Nietzsche say, no, this is, this is, the wrong way of thinking about it. We don't reason our way into more into moral uh, precepts. Uh, what we do is we observe the people around us as we develop, and we uh, we observe what they value implicitly, right? and we observe how they value and what they value, and we and we, this interacts with our own temperament, right? Because we bring our own sort of temperament into the world as well, and so uh, it's like a combination of our temperament in in response to what we're seeing in our in our social milieu. Um, and then that, that forms moral intuitions, right? We have intuitions about what is right and wrong. And then on top of that, we reason, we use our rationality to justify those intuitions. And so mm. for Nietzsche, right, this is what Kant is doing. Right? This is what Kant is doing. Kant has Christian moral intuitions. And Kant is using his reasoning powers to justify those moral intuitions. And Bentham is the same way, right? Bentham is the same. Bentham, you know, their systems might look quite different, but they're doing the same thing. And Sam Harris is the same way. As far as I'm concerned, the moral landscape is one of the greatest Christian books ever written, right? Because you know it's it's a it's Christian morality put into uh, put into a rational system, right? Now Sam would hate that, but I don't care because I think it's the case, right? Um, <laughs> you know, he's he's putting forward this idea that what we want to do is we want to increase the well-being of all sentient creatures, right? We want to increase the well-being of all conscious creatures. Uh, this is a very this is a very Christian way of thinking about morality. I mean, you go back and you try to tell a Roman noble. I tell a Roman noble that what he needs to be doing is increasing the well-being of all, you know, it's, it's, it, why, why would I want it? Why would he, as he's, the, you know, yeah, as the he, Romans yeah. wouldn't really think like that. No, no, not at all. I mean, it, it, it just wouldn't appeal to them at all. It only appeals to Western moral intuitions. And then Sam constructs mm. this nice rational argument on top of that, but it's all a justification. Right? And so what Nietzsche said that we need to do uh, in order to get past, because the question then is, well, how do we get past that? Right. If all of this reasoning is just rationalization, how do we get past it? And for Nietzsche, the answer to that question was that we need a genealogy of morals. We need to know where they come from, mm. right? Why do we have them? Whose interests do they really serve? And then when we have a genealogy, then we can look at them somewhat objectively and we can see how they're serving our interests or not, or, or whatever the case may be. Mm. Yeah. And so that's, yeah, that's and kind do of... Do you think... Mm. Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and you think that's what's kind of emerging now in these areas of, you know, evolutionary psychology, cultural evolution, cognitive science. Um, yes. Is an explanation of where these value judgments are coming from. And it's yes. quite so a broad I think that's area. The value. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, I think that's the value of these fields for, for bridging the is-ought gap, is that they, uh, they're putting forward a, a, a viable story about where our, our moral values come from. And once we understand where they come from, then we can we can sort of judge them properly. Uh, mm. But until we have that understanding, we are only able to use our reasoning powers to justify the intuitions that we already hold. Right? Mm. Uh, 
right? Until we have, until we are able to get underneath those intuitions and understand where those intuitions came from, right? The, the biological, cultural, and sort of personal origins of those intuitions. Uh, and then for Nietzsche, this was his definition of freedom, right? We, we become free when we understand ourselves well enough and we have to understand our history in order to understand ourselves, mm -hmm. our evolutionary and cultural history. Uh, then we can sort of wrest some kind of freedom away from that. Mm -hmm. um, but until then, we're sort of uh, we're sort of in, enslaved to uh, to forces that we don't understand or, or that we can't understand. There's a lot in that, man. I'm, I it's kind of yeah. Socratic in a way as well, like in terms of this the Socratic project of, you know, know thyself. And if you were to go far enough into that, it would lead you to these other kind of broader areas, like what you were saying about your own personal story. I've been doing something kind of similar myself from coming from my early 20s of wanting to, you know, put myself together. And, you know, Peterson definitely contributed a lot to that, um, to the motivational kind of um, organizing of oneself. But that that self-knowledge being so key to being able to improve on that. Um, yeah. Do you think that's part of, you know, is this an educational project ultimately that we need to create um, institutions and structures, digital or physical, for people to learn about themselves more so they can kind of make better judgments? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's in some sense, yes. I mean, I think that for, uh, as part of our education, this is what the humanities are supposed to do. The humanities are supposed to expose us to our, our cultural history so that we can understand ourselves. They've been totally corrupted as far as I'm concerned in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, uh, but that's what they're, that's what humanities, that's what a humanities education is supposed to do is expose you to the great moral tradition from which you emerged uh, so that you can understand yourself. And so, yes, I think that they're, they're, that's a big aspect of it. Now, for the average person, I mean, for the average person who's not, you know, most people don't benefit from a, from a serious humanity. You know, um, the average person, it's not an intellectual endeavor, right? So this is why we have stories to some degree, right? Everybody can understand a story, right? Not everybody can understand abstract arguments, right? It's just a fact of the world, right? So for the average person, uh, this is not going to be an intellectual endeavor for them. Um, and, and this is why we have stories. Uh, we have stories because everybody can understand a story, right? And so, um, and so, so as an educational endeavor, you know, I think that it, it, it absolutely benefits people to be educated and to have an education such that you understand where your values came from. Uh, but for the average person, I think um, there has to be uh, a sort of more, a sort of simplistic version of this, right? Uh, the, these kinds of worldviews, right? Mm. Like one of the things that a religion does is it appeals to all levels of analysis, right? It appeals to everybody at all levels of analysis. So like you look at the Bible and there's, you know, thousands of pages of intellectual commentary on the Bible over the course of Western history. Uh, most people don't know anything about that, right? They, they're sort of grounded in the stories. Uh, and so and so you have to have both of those things at the same time, I think. Yeah, that's so interesting because that's that's something I've really observed in terms of the the complexity of this material and the kind of the interdisciplinary nature of it as well. I mean, even for people that are in academia, the idea of combining all of these areas and going between them and going to ethics and philosophy and cognitive science and evolutionary psychology and kind of walking from domain to domain is pretty alien as well. So yeah. I, I can see the kind of the need for consolidating that and then communicating it to people in a way do you think in some sense this is going to venerate a particular tradition that was something i was worrying about as well or well, worrying about i suppose wondering about might be more accurate but um 
do you think because I, I know in your conclusion obviously there's there's an explanation of God and the pattern of God and that that's um that you can explain God naturalistically in a sense um from this point of view although I don't want to put you on the spot and that's too big an ask, but um, do you think that this is going to serve as a foundation for an existing tradition or is it going to be a new kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I certainly have no pretenses about creating a religion or anything like that, you know. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, and, 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 yeah, yeah, I yeah, you know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's certainly not my goal. Uh, uh, but is it, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, is it going to venerate? I mean, the thing is, you know, I, I wonder about this because, uh, and this is something that I'll write about at some point in time. I mean, I think that the the early so you know, Western culture is Christian culture. There's no getting away from. It. I mean, I think that people vastly underestimate the effect that Christianity has had on Western on the Western psyche, even among secular people. And so, in some sense, there's no getting out from under Christianity. Um, but at the same time, I think that I think that. Uh, the origins of Christianity are very murky, and I and I suspect that there's um, so I suspect that Nietzsche is actually right about some things, and there's been some books written about this by scholars of early Christianity. So what Nietzsche said about Christianity is that Christianity has very little to do with Christ, and it has mostly mostly to do with Paul. That actually what we think of as Christianity mostly came from the mind of Paul of Tarsus, uh, and there have been there have been multiple scholars who have made this case. I think Nietzsche is being venerated on this. Um, I think that that is going to, I think that when you look at that, um, it's going to sort of take the sales out of mainstream Christianity a little bit because, um, because I think there's a lot of stuff that, that is inherent to Christianity that really has very little to do with the story of Christ as such, and, and really has to do with, with Paul. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Nietzsche was a, Nietzsche really hated Paul, you know, uh, but uh, yeah, it, 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 this is a tough question for me because I, I do think there's some de there's some degree to which we there's no way of getting out from under Christianity, and I don't necessarily want to do that. Uh, at the same time, I think that the origins of Christianity are very murky, and I'm, I'm very skeptical about uh, a lot of things that are inherent to Christianity. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't I don't really know the answer to that question. You know, for me, my my goal is to just put forward what I think is true about these things and let the chips sort of fall where they may. Uh, but it is it is an interesting question as to whether this will venerate certain traditions over others. Um, there's a mm. lot of things that, that my yeah. My view, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say. I mean, because in in my case, like I was raised without any religion, so I was raised technically atheist, I suppose, and I I feel like that was a big factor in the kind of meaning personal meaning crisis of looking for a way of life questions of ethics, nihilism, um, like so many other people that are born into the kind of secular bracket. Um, and then even people that are born into religious ones and then kind of can't justify it anymore. And, you know, is there a way of addressing the meaning crisis without kind of, I mean, Peterson's response is to reinvigorate to a certain extent Christianity. Um, yeah. John Verveke obviously is going a very different way about it with, you know, an ecology of practices and that yeah. kind of way of doing things. But it does seem yeah. like there's no way of kind of not ending up at some sort of either previous religion or new religion. Sure. Know. Yeah. So, I mean, I think Peterson is more conservative than I am in, in these regards. I mean, he sees the Bible, you know, in, in his biblical series, his lecture on the biblical series is really great, you know, and I, I think it's a great, mm. it's a great series, but yeah. you know, he, he sort of, he venerates the Bible in a way that I don't, I mean, I, I see the old Testament and the new Testament, mm as being partially works of propaganda. 
you know, um, the so there's a there's a very good book uh, called Did God Have a Wife? It was written by this Israeli archaeologist. And um, mm-hmm. in, in that book, he so what he talks about is that they found, you know, like 3000 figurines in ancient Israel, and almost all of them are a feminine figure. So they're almost all of them are of this feminine, uh, this feminine entity. And he argues that this was Asherah. So Asherah is mentioned in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, Asherah was essentially God's wife in the Canaanite uh, religion. And in the Bible, in the Old mm-hmm. Testament, when they mention Asherah, it's always in the context of condemning the worship of Asherah. Um, and what he argues is that the folk religion, right, so the sort of the religion of the people was really this uh, more kind of shamanic kind of religion, um, more so sort of uh, involving these intense rituals and goddess worship was a part was a part of it. And that the religion that we see represented in the Old Testament was really the religion of the male elite uh, literati, right? So the sort of male intellectual elite, these were the people who were literate, very few people were literate at that time, but they were the uh, they were the literate ones. Mm-hmm. And it reflects their interests, right? Because what they were interested in was unifying Israel under a nationalist sort of, uh, uh, they had a kind of a nationalist agenda. And so the Old Testament represents their agenda and and it sort of ignores the, um, what, what really most people's religious experience was quite different from what we see represented in the Old Testament. And my point in that is that uh, the Old Testament is partially a word, you know, these were the people who wrote it had agendas just like everybody else. There were people who edited it anyways, because it's really uh, a work of editing. And, and the same thing is true of the New Testament. And I don't doubt that there is great wisdom in these books, but I think it's also important to recognize them as being the products of human beings who have agendas. Uh, and so I think that Peterson sort of venerates these things a little more than I do. Um but yeah, it's 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 still an open question to me as to how we're going to incorporate our traditions, you know, going into the future. And uh, I suspect there's going to be some disconnect. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I suspect there's going to be some disconnect. You know, really, I'm talking to you know, and my and my my audience is not. I I don't see my audience as being sort of. Uh, it is it is the people who John Verveke calls the uh, what the the knots or the people who who don't have. Religious identification, yeah, the nuns, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, because that's kind of what I am in that regard. It's, it's, how do we, you know, how do we establish meaning uh, when we don't, when we can't, you know, you don't choose what you believe, right? You don't, you don't get to choose what you believe. So for those of us who can't believe in the same way that religious people do, uh, how do we establish meaning and and all that in the in the wake of that? Um, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting question. question. Yeah, it's a <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really interested because I suppose that's kind of the, I, the issue of once you lay all of this stuff out and if it becomes kind of concrete academic knowledge that we, you know, the wor- the worldview that you lay out and intimations of a new worldview and it gets to the point where we have a kind of naturalistic explanation of God. So atheism isn't really an option is secularity an option because maybe this god has certain presuppositions it does at least that it's a a process that you engage with it kind of reminded me of the god of augustine really which i thought was very interesting and he always talks about god as the goal um as this kind of good beyond the goods that organizes all of the other goods um like an infinite game in a sense it it organizes all of the finite parts in such a way that you don't become addicted idolatrous etc um and so i kind of wonder about yeah um 
how I suppose you can reconcile being a non with having the argument for God. Sure. Well, it's that seems you know, so coherent. Of, yeah. Well, part of whether we believe in God depends on what we mean by God, right? You know, because I uh, mm. I don't conceptualize God as as somebody who answers the prayer. You know, uh, you know, uh, answers answers prayers like. Mm. You know, if a family member has cancer or something, it's, it's not like that. Um, it's a mode of yeah. being, right? mode mm -hmm. of being. And, and and it's a mode of being that we can participate mm -hmm. in. And actually, you know, John Verveke uh, in his second, I think it's the second or third video in the Meaning Crisis series, talks about this as this was the, this was how people used to conceptualize God, right? Uh, sort of at the beginning yeah. of the Old Testament in the, uh, you know, God yeah. was, God was a mode of being, right? God was a way of being in the world that we could aspire to mm. uh, and, and represent it as a personality because that's what it is. A personality is a stable pattern of, you know, a relatively stable pattern of behavior over time. And now, you know, the question is whether or not there's mm. something beyond that. And I, you know, the, the honest answer is that I think that there is, you know, I think that there is actually an ontological basis to this, but that's an argument perhaps mm. for another time. Uh, but, yeah. um, hmm. Yeah, so you know whether or not you're an atheist kind of depends if if you're if you're conceptualizing God in the old way, right? So what Nietzsche would say, like the God of being, uh, or you know God is sort of the sky daddy or whatever, then yeah, I, I don't believe in that God. Uh, but you know, I, I suspect that um, yeah. So I, I do, you know, obviously I wrote about it, so I, I think that the the conception of God that I put forward is a coherent conception of God and. Uh, and, and it's also very concordant with what Jordan Peterson did in Maps of Meaning and what Alfred North Whitehead did in, in his sort of magnum opus, Process and Reality. Uh, and so it's not um, mm. it's not entirely original or anything like that. It's something that uh, there's been a, a sort of tradition that has conceptualized God this way for a while, but it's always been sort of marginalized, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, well, there's a, there's almost kind of an intrinsic responsibility in this kind of God as well, which is that you need to kind of enact the mode of being i'm thinking that like you know imitating christ and matthew christie that there's a an obligation to actually uh live your life in a certain way according to certain um concert or certain modes of being i suppose that aren't kind of you can't do whatever you want it's almost a system of kind of discipline or enculturation in a way um yeah. which has um obviously it's a lot easier if it's just somebody that you get to ask for Christmas presents or for things when things are going bad, you know, uh, that right. simplifies it a lot. But if it's a an actual ideal that judges you and sets the normative constraints for your behavior in the present, um, it's very real, uh, or it has to be, I suppose. So that's kind of a, like, I, can you can you set a god or an ideal without it having you know normative power on us now? I mean, that would be a I mean, there's value judgments in the the mode of being. I suppose that that's the redemptive way of being, or the most important. Um, yeah, compared to um, other ones. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, for you know, Jordan has made the argument that this is part of what drove the death of God was people's uh, people people not wanting to take that kind of responsibility, right? Because there is a kind of uh, heavy mm. weight that's on you if you if you actually think this way because mm. it means that there is a way of being in the world that's nothing but good and that you are consistently falling short of it right uh, it's a very Christian Christian sort of way of yeah. talking about it but um, but it, yeah. I think it's I think it's the case and um, 
And so there is that aspect of responsibility to it. Uh, and, and if you, and if you understand it as being nothing but good, then you understand that, uh, you know, there, there's no excuse for not participating in it, right? You don't have a good excuse for not participating in it other than your resentment, right? And, and I think that, you know, Jordan this is what Jordan talked about this is what Nietzsche talked about. Uh, the number one thing that drives people to to not participate in this is their is their resentment, right? Is their ressentiment, as Nietzsche put it. Uh, you look mm. at somebody. So one of the things I'm, I'm um, probably the next essay that I publish will be about this. Um, Elliot Roger, if you remember, Elliot Roger was the uh, Santa Barbara mass shooter from 2014. Mass shooter, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, and and he. Uh, you know, he was just totally consumed by his resentment uh, because he was born in, in, you know, he was born, um, he, wa he wasn't athletic, he wasn't creative, he wasn't attractive, he wasn't very tall, you know, and, and he, uh, and, and girls didn't like him and boys made fun of him. And he was just consumed by his envy and resentment. And this drove him to do as mm. much damage to the world as he possibly could. And People do this all the time to a lesser degree, right? This this was Nietzsche's thesis, and it's Jordan's thesis as well. Uh, people, you know, people don't don't go so far as as trying to shoot innocent people, but they they take their resentment out on the world all the time, and it's the it's the opposite mode of being is this, right? The, the, that's the adversarial mode. You know, if this is the sort of heroic mode of being uh, of you trying to trying to integrate yourself into the world and and become the best version of yourself you can be, the opposite of that is uh, taking your revenge on the world because you think life is unfair and so on. Uh, and, and so I think people do that to a lesser or greater degree quite a bit. That's so interesting. I literally just wrote an article on Substack about uh, Jeffrey Dahmer and the mm. kind of, I suppose, current phenomenon of him being the number one show on Netflix that has you know, 196 million hours watched or something since the release. It's the mm. most popular thing since Stranger Things new season and yeah. uh, what it is that people are looking for in a life that's clearly so ill spent, like in such a like to take the gift, I suppose, that we have of creativity and to use it for these ends that are like shocking in, you know, unbelievable ways in their creativity um, and how that that kind of implicit recognition that that's a waste of life or a bad life also in the same judgment specifies a way of being that's not that. Um, yeah. Like like what Peterson says, that we can recognize it in the evil more easily almost than we can in the good. Um, yeah. And that there's that kind of absolute nature of good that it actually seems to include, the. it points to, in the darkness, points to the light almost. Um, yeah. And that we seem to be able to to see that in these kind of evil characters like Elliot Rogers or like any of them that, they lived such a life of um, just, yeah, resentment and envy and destruction that it's uh, the complete antithesis of what we could do with this gift that we have. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the probably one of the most common ways that people uh, take out their resentment, which is, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer and Elliot Roger are sort of extreme cases, right? Um, mm. But what, what Nietzsche argued... And I think he's right about this, you know, and this was Nietzsche's problem with morality as as we normally construe it, is that mm -hmm. if you're somebody who is weak and resentful and, and kind of a loser like Elliot Roger was, right, he wasn't good at anything, 
Mm. You know, and he strove for so he wanted to he wanted to feel superior to other people, right? He 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 craved a feeling of superiority, uh, but he couldn't get it. But what what Nietzsche argued that people do mm. in this situation is that they can they construe themselves as being morally superior, and to be morally superior, you don't have to actually do anything. You don't have to create anything. You don't have to be beautiful or smart or athletic. You can just believe the right things. And if you just believe the right things, then you can say anybody who doesn't believe what I believe is a bad person and, and yada, yada. And so, uh, and so this is one of the things, um, that I think we're like, I think this is what is essentially overtaken the humanities at this point, um, is this, yeah. this, um, this way of construing morality, this self-righteous way of construing morality that allows people who don't actually create or do anything to present themselves as being morally superior to everybody else without, without doing anything, you know, and this is the, you know, Nietzsche calls it the will to power of the weakest. Uh, but yeah, I think it's important. Um, you know, William Blake said that in hell, all is self-righteousness. Right. And what's so important to me about this, mm -hmm. you know, the, the sort of way of construing values, um, uh, that you know Jordan Peterson put forward and and that I, I that I'm putting forward as well is that it's not self righteousness right there's no self righteousness I mean it's not about being a good person I'm not trying to be a better person than you I'm trying to live a mm -hmm. good life right it's about living a good life right which is the older mm -hmm. sort of way of thinking about ethics uh, the sort of um, uh, Greek way of thinking yeah. about ethics is uh, how do I live a good life mm -hmm. um, not how can I be a better person than you and something like that. <laughs> Yeah. And that there's a, yeah, there's something, I mean, the moral superiority thing also, there's kind of like an intellectual sleight of hand almost. Like if you're physically dominated by people or you're not successful, you can just invent a kind of metaphysics in your mind. You see it a lot with the kind of conspiracy theory space yes. where, you know, you can invert essentially where you're the moral top of the pile and everybody else is actually bad. Cause if you're rich and successful, that makes you a bad person automatically. And I'm not rich and successful, so that makes me a good person. Um, yep. And I think that kind of philosophy is festering a lot in our society, maybe because, like, I mean, it reminds me of the story of Cain and Abel. Like, if you kill your ideal, this is kind of the situation you end up in. Like, you've the thing that judges you to make you better, which you're kind of subjugated to, if you kill that so you can be the top of the pile, you kind of just end up in that. It's almost like... A, a rule or something that that's the yeah. psychology you get. Um, and part of Peterson, I get Peterson, I think did that for me. Like I was probably in that state where I was resentful and not grateful enough for the gifts that I had and for the things that were going well and probably not working hard enough or, you know, paying <laughs> attention to what I should pay attention to. Um, and Peterson's kind of worldview offered a way back into that with some straightforward kind of, you know, clean your room, take yeah. care of those things. But, it's interesting that that message was so absent in, you know, Western culture that, you know, his contribution was so significant right. and they were quite standard things really. No, it should be, it should be common sense. Right. But I, it, yeah, but it wasn't. And yeah, that's what Peterson did for me as well. And, mm. uh, and it just totally changed mm. my life I mean, because nobody had ever explained to me, you know, I was very lazy in school. I didn't do, I didn't do much in school, you know, and, and it's because nobody, I'm a, I'm a relatively disagreeable person. Right. And, you know, agreeable people just do what they're supposed to do. You know, they, they just kind of do, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay. So that's what I do. 
um, you know, for me, it's like I'm, I wasn't going to do it unless I had a good reason to do it. And, and nobody had ever given me a good reason to work hard on myself. And anybody ever, you know, mm -hmm. but that's what Jordan did. And uh, and it was and the way he conceptualized it was uh, was extremely meaningful. And the fact that that is missing from our culture uh, is, is part of the reason why Jordan had this meteoric rise. Right. Because people were starving for it. Right. People were starving mm -hmm. for uh, a way of conceptualizing the world that would propel them forward in the world rather than, you know, just do nothing to sort of judge them. And, uh, but yeah, so this, you know, the idea that this sort of, um, that kind of moral superiority stance is, is festering in our culture. I think it's true. I think it's a terrible sickness in our culture. And, uh, I think it's the dark side of our Christian inheritance. Um, this was Nietzsche's argument anyways, you know, what Nietzsche said is that, uh, basically the, you know, Christianity is slave morality, right? And you look at what Paul wrote, right? Paul said, uh, who is, who is venerated by God? It's the weak and the meek and the, and the humble and, uh, the rich are the one are the bad guys, but this was tempered. This was tempered to some degree by the metaphysics of Christianity, because the metaphysics of Christianity mm -hmm. said that justice would be had in the afterlife, basically, right? Uh, that there would be a final judgment day and all the rights would be made wrong and that you, while you're on, while you're on the earth, what you need to do is try to imitate the figure of Christ. And in the afterlife, all the judge, all the, all the rights will be made wrong. Well, we inculcated that, uh, you know, Nietzsche's argument was that basically we trained the, the, the Western mind to value, right. To this equality sort of justice kind of morality. And then as soon as we took the metaphysics away, mm. as soon as we took the metaphysics away, that's all we were left with. Yeah. And, uh, and so mm. all we were left with is, well, the weak and the meek are the good and, and the strong are the, you know, the, the successful are the bad. And so that mm -hmm. morality became its own, uh, became its own ideology. And I think this, I think this is what we're seeing. You know? Um, mm. but yeah, so, so the, yeah, the, I've heard uh, it called zombie Christianity. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. No, I think Christianity that's limping on, but without the, the, yeah, the metaphysics that made sense of it. Yep. Yeah. The metaphysics um, that sort of tempers. Right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Oh, well, just one, one thing on this, because I think, I think Nietzsche was very mm. prescient on this. I mean, for Nietzsche, the, you know, part of what slave morality does is temper the resentment of the, of the underdogs, right? It, it, it functions for a civilization because, you know, the, the lower classes, let's say, are always resentful against the people at the top and they always want to topple things. But what the, what, a moral system can temper that by saying, A, you know, you're responsible for your own suffering and B, uh, justice will be had in the after in the afterlife, essentially. And then once you get rid of that, well, all that resentment comes back, right? The resentment never went away. It's, it's still there. And so that's kind of what happened when we, mm. and, you know, with the death of God, right? That resentment that was under the surface is now uh, is now coming back with its own sort of moral ideology. Yeah, and there's a lot of arguments as well for science and materialism. I know that Peterson makes that argument that essentially like Christianity promised a redemptive mode of being that would, you know, overcome the suffering of life. And then it kind of went on for a thousand and however many years and that didn't really come to fruition. You know, things still kind of sucked. So mankind then turned to the promise of finding redemption in the material world, which is this yeah. kind of technology and I, I think we're a little bit in that now really this technological kind of particularly for nons that our lives are very punctuated by technological creations and we're always kind of the technology is shaping our values and our attention and our experience 
Um, and that's becoming, a, that's probably a different conversation. That's, but that that's kind of a feedback loop as well. Um, that's keeping us in this kind of conflicted state. Um, yeah. So we can't really go back to go forward. Um, but the redemptive way of life, I kind of see that in your work, Brett, here. Like, I really think that that seems to be, you know, the hero's journey is what Peterson pitches as the redemptive way of life. And it certainly worked for me. And even on those micro levels of, you know, completing goals and cleaning your room and actually caring about your life and your character and the difference that that can make is unbelievable. Um, yeah. Like, that really works um and is is the answer just to get more people on board with that or yes you know, as far as i'm concerned that's a fair yeah. categorization yes absolutely mm. you know the the answer is not to impose some kind of ideology from the top down the answer is many individuals getting their act together and you know as far as i'm concerned yeah. uh my own life is like an example is you know i, I see because I, yeah, I had the same experience as you you know i was on the path to be a miserable mm. loser and I, you know, and I, like Jordan's work um, essentially helped me to turn the ship around in a total sort of 180 and things are so much better now. It's, it's almost unbelievable. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, every time an individual gets their act together like that, you know, the world moves one step, you know, one step mm. further from the brink, right? And one step closer to something resembling paradise. And so that is the answer, right? Is, is, is facilitating many individuals mm. getting their act together so that they can participate in this in this process, which is the process by which you, you know, um, when we talk about self-organized criticality, right? Well, what does it mean to self-organize? It means to put yourself together. And that's, that's mm -hmm. literally what it means uh, to put yourself together so that you can stand on the border between order and chaos. Right. And doing that makes you a more powerful individual. And, and, you know, one of the ways that Jordan construes, uh, you know, and this, this was extremely helpful for me. Uh, so in, in my essay about in my intimations essay, I talk about non-zero sum games, right? And uh, we've evolved, right? We've evolved to discover and facilitate non-zero sum games. We were selected for that. Um, so one of the ways this connects to Jordan's work or, or Jordan's lectures anyways, is that he talks about, you know, the way you should construe your aims, right? You want to aim at something that is good for you and good for your family and good for your community and your culture and good for all of those things, both now and next week and five years from now and 10 years from now, right? You want to, you want to construct your aim so that uh, all of those different interests are integrated within the aim. And if you do that, um, then your aims become maximally motivating. And I think that's 100% true. I mean, it was true for me, right? Uh, it's a, you're integrating all of the different, uh, all of the different aspects of yourself into a into a sort of single overarching aim and it, it integrates you and puts you together mm -hmm. uh and and yeah and and i think that um i think that is essentially the answer right it's not it's not like you know imposing an ideology it's it's facilitating many individuals you know putting themselves together like that yeah that the, it's kind of a bottom-up um and yeah, the, across all of the layers as well. That was something that really rang true with me of Peterson was that, you know, conceptualizing a future self that you actually care about and then organizing your life such that you're going to pursue that goal, which is that future self. But the future self implies, you know, your relationship, your family, the culture at large, the world, you know, we're not these kind of isolated nodes. Um, so we don't really know the the upper limits of that 
as Peterson is fond of saying. Um, thank you so much, Brett. We've hit our time now. I know we got a little bit um, lost with some recording stuff, but um, I'm going to include the Substack in the description. I highly encourage people to sign up for it. I'm in awe at every essay that I've read so far, and I will continue to read them because uh, exactly like that, I think you're an individual who who is making that difference, um, and I really appreciate your work. Well, thank you, Mahan, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure.